Welcome to the breakdown. This is Yasser Louati coming to you straight from the Paris Southside banlieue. Today is a, I would say, a memorable episode for me because I'm receiving a person with whom I do share quite uh, converging point of views on what's happening in the US. And his publications are actually in direct continuation with the ongoing protests, both in the US and in France. Um, I'm honored to receive Dr. Joseph Peniel. Oh, Peniel He's a Peniel professor Joseph. of history. Yeah. A lot of people do that. It's Peniel Joseph. Peniel Joseph. Peniel Joseph. My bad. My apologies. Dr. Peniel Joseph. And actually, I have even written down, like, it's like, can't you read? Peniel Joseph from the University of Austin, where he is a professor of history. Now, uh, I've come to know him through his publications, most notoriously through the biography of Stokely Carmichael, titled Stokely, A, uh, a Life. Uh, two other publications that have stayed missing for me are the first one, Waiting Till the Midnight Hour, a narrative history of black power in America. And the second one is Dark Days, Bright Nights, from Black Power to Barack Obama. Something worth noting about Dr. Joseph is that he's, he pioneered the studies of black power. And that's why his book that he's publishing today comes right on time. It's titled The Sword and the Shield. But two biographies or parallel then converging biographies of Malcolm X and Dr. King. Dr. Joseph, welcome oh, to the show. All right, so I'm going to say it in French because I know you understand me. Bonjour et bienvenue. Uh, my first question, Dr. Joseph, why this book and why now, given the huge amount of literature on Malcolm X and Dr. King, the huge amount of literature on the civil rights movements, and of course, the various um, analysis and interpretations of what went right and what went wrong. We can, for example, begin with, you know, Cedric J. Robinson here, right? Robin Nijie Kelly, his student. And of course, so you see where I'm going with that. So please, why this book and why now? Well, you know, that's a great question. And I'd say that this book, um, when you do research, and I've been, wow, I've been doing this for over 30 years now, both as a, um, just as a student, as an activist, as a scholar, but lifelong student, um, you find in the archives and different people's books, one of my mentors, Manny Marable, posthumously won a Pulitzer Prize for a great biography. Yeah, and power, Robin yes. Kelly is one of my mentors too. He was on my dissertation committee. I've, I've had so many, Sonia Sanchez, I've had so many different uh, people who are celebrated figures who've helped me intellectually. Most important, my mother, Jermaine Joseph, my Haitian mother who's 81 years old and, and in New York City and, and doing well. Um, but the more I read about Malcolm and Martin, the more I felt that uh, people got them wrong. You know, people got them wrong in the sense that people looked at them as, as, as uh, competing opposites, as just adversaries, as just rivals. And so I was really interested in writing a book that made a different argument that wasn't about saying that Dr. King had a dream and Malcolm X had a nightmare. But I started to look at both of them as these two unbelievable revolutionaries who served as each other's alter ego. And if anything, Malcolm helps. Malcolm's the missing link when we think about why did Dr. King become so radical? He became so radicalized. People will say it's because of the war in Vietnam, it's because of this and that. I make the argument, it's really because of Malcolm X. It's Malcolm X's political thought 
um, and activism that radicalizes King. And then in turn, when you think about Malcolm, you know, who was this person and how does, Mal how does Martin Luther King Jr. impact him? And I think that you look at Malcolm and he's somebody who has uh, an evolution. He's a revolutionary always, but he undergoes an evolution that broadens his political perspectives, that broadens him into this human rights leader. And I argue it's not just the last year of his life he undergoes that evolution. He goes at, undergoes that evolution the last really 18 years of his life, as soon as he's in prison and incarcerated. And, you know, I make an argument he's a Muslim throughout too, you know, even when he's with the Nation of Islam, he's a Muslim. I don't, I don't, I don't disparage different sects of religion um, because they're not considered orthodox. I think that that's very, very racist to do when people look at black people or somebody who's Algerian or somebody who is Latinx and they say, because you are not part of this specific sect of Christianity or specific sect of Islam, you are worthless. We only do that to uh, black indigenous, you know, people of color, right? And so I really respect both of them incredibly, but I make an argument that they're both revolutionaries who we both need to understand. I mean, it's quite interesting that you mentioned how Malcolm X actually influenced uh, Dr. King, but I wanna ask you, how did Dr. King influence Malcolm X on the opposite side? Because we see that, of course, the last year of Malcolm X's life is, it's like a, a history is moving at 10 times the normal speed and things happen so quickly, he's traveled to Africa, etc., And he calls out racism and takes this, this posture and uh, posture in French meaning this positioning. I'm not sure if English it says it's it the same thing. And how did King influence Malcolm, especially, I mean, like, regardless of Malcolm saying, you know, and uh, his apologies, I mean, the human bitterness can be there, especially if, it, if it's going on for years. At the end of the day, you make the case that indeed Dr. King influenced Malcolm X, but how did it happen? Did Malcolm X, because Malcolm questioned himself, you know, after traveling to Mecca, or the results of Dr. King, and maybe the sympathy of him, you know, when he traveled down south and seeing, you know, seeing him going what he went through. Please, like, I'm trying to kind of, you know, make it for the audience that it's very clear that, yeah, they actually were influencing each other and then they moved on the same path. Yeah, so I argue that Malcolm X, he's looking for radical black dignity and Dr. King is looking for radical black citizenship. And Malcolm argues that the radical black dignity is an end of white supremacy, an end of colonialism, an end to uh, anti-Black racism domestically, but also uh, anti-African racism internationally. Uh, and that expands to include the third world, the Middle East as well, because Malcolm first travels to the Middle East and Africa in 1959. So Malcolm thinks you just need radical Black dignity. King argues for radical Black citizenship. And what does that mean? King argues that citizenship means more than just ending Jim Crow segregation and racial oppression and voting rights. It means the appearance of justice, which King says is a universal basic income, guaranteed jobs, guaranteed healthcare, uh, end of racial segregation in public schools and in housing. So when we look at how did Dr. King influence Malcolm, he really through his example, and this is not just the final year. I think when you read The Sword and the Shield, you really see uh, their political careers, Malcolm from 1952 to 65, and King from 1955 to 68, 
how they are on this trajectory and history is moving fast, like you said, at 10 times the rate, but not just in their, their final years. If you look at them day to day, they're talking about anti-colonialism. King is meeting with Ben Bella. King meets with Kwame Nkrumah. King goes to India and meets with Prime Minister Nehru. He's doing all this in the 1950s. Malcolm is meeting with these same figures, especially the African figures in Harlem in the 1950s as well. Uh, Malcolm X has an office at the United Nations because different international figures have given him access to the United Nations. So he has his own office in the United Nations. Malcolm, when Malcolm is uh, 34 years old, 35 years old, he meets up with Fidel Castro in Harlem and people don't wanna talk about this. So Malcolm is this international statesman who can go to uh, Middle Eastern universities, African kingdoms, uh, European um, um, public spheres uh, like, like Oxford University and debate and speak and really is treated like a visiting dignitary. The way in which Dr. King influences him is to have a better understanding that what Malcolm calls American hypocrisy, which is American democracy, you still need democratic institutions if you're gonna achieve black liberation. And what I mean is this, King makes the argument that, look, we still need voting rights, even though that that's not enough, because these are these institutions that impact our, our society. They impact where black people can live, where they can be employed, uh, what public and private spaces they can thrive in. So when we think about Malcolm and the influence King has on him, he's gonna come to see that you need not just black dignity, but black citizenship as well. And that's when you're gonna see Malcolm is talking about human rights. He's talking about going to the United Nations and charging uh, uh, the, the United States with, with human rights violations which is something that Langston Hughes in an earlier generation, We Charge Genocide had tried to do, William Patterson, so many others. Um, so when we think about Malcolm's being influenced by 63, I argue, when you think about Birmingham, Malcolm is in Washington DC when Birmingham's happening. Malcolm visits DC when the March on Washington is happening. Malcolm yeah. is impressed by Dr. King's ability to mobilize millions of people. And even right now, the period of time that we're living in in 2020, the time period as a historian, the year that is closest to this year is actually not 1968, it's 1963. 1968 is the denouement <laughs> of that period where we had a hope because after Dr. King's assassination, 125 cities uh, break out into open rebellion and for the next 52 years, what the United States is going to do until this latest uh, rebellion that's global in scope is have 52 years of mass incarceration and the criminalization and the punishment and the incarceration of Black people and the killing and the premature death, the murdering of Black people, not just Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, but thousands and thousands and thousands. So Malcolm and King influence each other. King, after Malcolm's death, is gonna realize you need radical black dignity and citizenship. Malcolm realizes it even before. And we can talk about very specific instances in 1964 when he's making that rapprochement. But one of the things I think my book shows is that even as Malcolm X had been told not to participate in demonstrations and marches by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, 
he consistently defied those orders, which is one of the reasons he's going to be kicked out of the group. <laughs> he consistently is on picket lines. He is marching. And when reporters ask him what he's doing here, he says he's observing. He's not observing. He's part of it. He's part of it, right? So he gives those answers and people say, oh, well, Malcolm X can't be part of this. Well, why is he at demonstrations in Washington, D.C.? There's 3,000 people there uh, when, when they're protesting the attorney general. Why is he in New York City at these massive demonstrations, some of which he organizes, some of which is he, he's there, he's participating. So he's this extraordinary figure. And when you put them both together in a book and you lay out their political careers alongside of each other, we learn so much more about that period and our own because they've impacted the Black Lives Matter and the Black liberation struggles here, but also third world liberation struggles that are happening globally, uh, including in France, including in Europe, Africa, uh, the entire world. So, I mean, like I thank you for this point. And, 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 and uh, actually I met several times with uh, Zahir Ali from the Malcolm X Project. Yeah, exactly. You know, of course, Zahir is brother brilliant. Zahir. Zahir is Shout out to him in Brooklyn. I think he's in DC now. Um, and the uh, the one thing, and that's true that Mark, I forgot which Marxist activist said that I saw Malcolm speaking and I knew he was going to leave. He was yeah, becoming that's going to gonna be uh, Grace Lee Boggs. I think it's him. Yeah, yeah like, it's her. Yeah. Grace Lee, she's the Chinese American Marxist who was married to an African American. No, actually, no, uh, James you know what? I'm, I'm going to remain, I'm, I think I'm, I'm going to take this Gloria one. Gloria Richardson said it too. Gloria Richardson, yeah. the civil rights right. activist. So it turns out that, you know, several people said that, you know, it's, it's not, you know, like, especially in LA after the case of police brutality and he was, you know, giving this, in, in a, you know, extremely powerful speech on police brutality. And you could sense that he was hitting the wall in terms of tactics. Like, you know, at, at some point, the police has got to be confronted, especially when they leave. Know, black bodies behind and just move on and to, to, to the next operation. Now, if we put things into context, it turns out that uh, people all often, if, if they go beyond the rhetoric of, you know, uh, nonviolence versus uh, self-determination and that you have to pick sides between, the, the, even in France, and, and that sometimes with white people, I tend to kind of, you know, try to talk them out of this. You know, it's not about Malcolm X, the violent man, and Martin Luther King, the loving, no, it's 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 much more complicated and much more complicated. But if both of them were influenced from each other's positioning in the public sphere, and at the end of their lives they were reaching a point of convergence. Now, of course, we can't be write history or even speculate on what might have happened. But if Malcolm X was drifting towards King and King was drifting towards Malcolm because their respective experiences made it so that okay, Malcolm acknowledges that you have to work through the system at some point, that the UN is an extraordinary platform. Remember that in the 60s, we are in the decolonial struggles, Algeria, especially for us in France, it speaks volumes. Nevertheless, if Malcolm X starts giving up some of his you know, ideas and, Mal and Dr. King starts drifting towards Malcolm X in terms of you know, white supremacy, you know, is so problematic that you know there might be, there might be like in a divorce irreconcilable differences. Mm -hmm. Do you think? And I'm speaking to the historian here. Do you think that Dr. King at some point would have joined the idea of self I mean like self defense that Malcolm X was advocating, or he he that that would be a red line for him? Yeah, no, that was a red line. I think where they converge is this idea of. Um, 
and Malcolm influences King here, structural racism, um, anti-imperialism, a, a real critique, anti-capitalism or understanding of what Cedric Robinson calls racial capitalism, that capitalism has historically been about the racial exploitation of black and people of color bodies um, and extracting as much wealth and resources while punishing those bodies and scapegoating those bodies globally. I think that they both converge around human rights and human dignity. Uh, Malcolm X um, tells the reporter in 1964 that him and Dr. King, um, they have the same goals and that's human dignity. They have different tactics. Malcolm always remains um, committed to political self-determination and that indigenous people have the right to decide how they're gonna liberate themselves. He always does. Uh, King always uh, maintains his, his faith in nonviolence as the correct tactic but he's gonna be using that tactic uh, in service of uh, complete revolutionary transformation um, in the United States and globally, what he calls the world house. So that's where they converge. They really converge around an understanding that um, racial capitalism, uh, systemic racism, uh, white supremacy, violence, militarism, materialism are the scourges of, of the world. Um, now Malcolm, wants to transform these things by building political alliances and coalitions all across the so-called third world, including the Islamic world. The idea that he is a secular, but also this Islamic leader. He writes a letter uh, to one of his, um, uh, one of the faith leaders uh, in the Middle East. And he says, I left my, my heart in Cairo um, because of how, how, you know, how intense his feelings are and he, he spends time five weeks in 1959 where he meets um, uh, Vice President uh, Sadat, uh, Anwar el-Sadat, who becomes president of Egypt. He spends time, he meets Prince Faisal. Uh, he, I mean, this, this is somebody who uh, people don't, there's still not the, 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 the right book yet on Malcolm's international travels. That's something I wanna, <laughs> I wanna do. Um, Be my guest. And, and, and take, those, take those trips too. Um, because I'm, I, I think that Malcolm X is really uh, one of the most extraordinary figures ever to live, not just in the 20th century, but ever. And I think Dr. King too. One of the things I argue at the outset of the book, when you think about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., the same dignity that we accord um, Winston Churchill, that we accord Franklin Roosevelt, that we accord these global historical figures, right? Uh, that's who they were, you know, it just, it, they happen to be black, but that's who they are. And I agree with what you were saying about the age of decolonization. It's a global age of decolonization between the global North and the global South. And historically, the global South has been super exploited by the global North. That exploitation continues, but the two leading figures who call out boldly, first Malcolm X, then Dr. King, Malcolm's the boldest critic of white supremacy until Dr. King. The two leading figures who call that out and say that there has to be a worldwide global revolution against that exploitation are Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. We remember Dr. King differently be precisely because racial capitalism has monetized Dr. King and has monopolized his legacy. So these are all myths and lies about Dr. King because Dr. King breaks with the Johnson administration. He comes out against the Vietnam War, April 4th, 1967. He says that militarism, racism, materialism are the triple uh, threats facing humanity. 
Dr. King, who now we have the statues of and the monuments and the holiday, he says at the Riverside Church, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world is the United States. He says it. Cameras are everywhere. He's a revolutionary. He's a revolutionary. He says it. Malcolm X says that uh, American democracy is nothing but American hypocrisy, right? And that you can't put a knife in a person's back nine inches, take it out six inches and say that that's progress. So Malcolm's a revolutionary too, right? So that's where they converge. These are two revolutionaries. Of course, they're still gonna have tactical differences, but they understand the systemic problem and they're trying to build a coalition. And it's a coalition of people who they're trying to educate. When Malcolm's at the Oxford Union debate, he says he's willing to go with anyone, irrespective of color, as long as they want to uh, transform the miserable condition on the face of this earth. But he's only interested in sincere white people. Malcolm says most white people aren't sincere because they've imbibed and they worship at the altar of white supremacy, right? Dr. King says that racism is a sickness and the United States is infected with this sickness and this disease of racism. This is Dr. King. Malcolm had told black people, and, and really the reason I call him Black America's prosecuting attorney is that he charged white America with a series of crimes against black humanity, tracing back to racial slavery, right? By the end of his life, Dr. King is in Marks, Mississippi, uh, organizing the Poor People's Campaign, and there's hundreds of black children around him, no shoes, uh, parents saying they don't have any jobs, no blanket, the poverty program is not reaching them. King, and we've got the video of him saying this, he says, look, the way you all are living here is a crime, right? So by the time 1968 happens, we start hearing Dr. King use the same language of Malcolm X, including language of black pride and black is beautiful and black dignity, right? So they converge and all you have to do, this is why I wrote the book. It was so astonishing through decades of research and reading seeing this, but never seeing a book that talked about them in this way, right? James Cohn has a great, brilliant book, Dream Versus Nightmare. Um, uh, Louis Lomax has the book To Kill a Black Man about both of them. Uh, but the person who was really inspirational, James Baldwin has a great Esquire article from 1972, where he says, by the end of their lives, you couldn't distinguish one from the other. Yes. And Baldwin knew both. So that's the whole point. The point of that book, The Sword and the Shield, and even the metaphor, we have King as the shield and Malcolm as a sword. And I'm saying that that's completely wrong. And by having them um, framed so wrong, we do ourselves a disservice, especially younger revolutionaries, younger activists, younger educators, to understand that both of these uh, activists were revolutionaries and both of them give us these huge legacies. But the reason why we don't understand it is we have a we have a misreading of this period, and that's purposeful. We've, we've uh, you know, we're the United States of amnesia, and we purposely distort King and Malcolm's legacies, because when you don't distort their legacies, you have a lot of, lot of education to do. You've got a lot of education when you don't distort their legacies. And I agree with you on that, Doctor, because the, uh, we have seen uh, some people uh, quoting uh, Dr. King um, as the Black Lives Matter movement was emerging following the racist murder of uh, George Floyd in, in Minneapolis. And then people telling them, you would have been the very same people who would have fought Dr. King if had he been alive. So uh, we're going to take a short break and I want to send you back to March 1964. And I know it's a date that you, you 
extensively uh, cover on a special event. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the breakdown. I'm still receiving. I'm, I'm still with Dr. Uh, Peniel Joseph, and we were talking about. I got it right this time. Yeah. <laughs> and we were. We were still talking, and you know, covering his uh, timely piece called "The Sword and the Shield," that I managed to get. All right. And uh, before we go to March 26, 1964, I want to ask you, Doctor, why do these two figures emerge? in a time where you have several figures, for example, like the NAACP's or Roy Wilkins, uh, James Farmer from uh, the Congress of uh, Racial Equality. We have the National Urban League's uh, Whitney Young. We have um, Philip Randall from the Brotherhood of Sleeping Cars. And we have the SNCC, uh, John Lewis, who is still with us. So, yes. John Lewis, uh, James Farmer, Roy Wilkins. Philip Randolph, Whitney Young, uh, 
and Malcolm X emerges through the Nation of Islam, and Dr. King emerges through his own Baptist church. Why these selections? Of course, if you are a believer, people would say God decides yeah. who is going to, is to select among his people. But politically speaking, with your eyes of, 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 through the historian's eyes, what makes these two characters stand out? Well, I think it's their backgrounds, you know, and one of the things I show early on is, you know, Malcolm is coming from a family of Garveyites, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, Marcus Garvey, his father and mother, uh, Earl and Louise Norton Little, they go to Omaha, Nebraska, where Malcolm is born, and then Lansing, Michigan. And so Malcolm experiences both um, Black political and cultural nationalism and Pan-Africanism, organizing traditions at an early age. Uh, but then racial trauma. His father is murdered by a white supremacist organization. His mother is placed in a psychiatric institution for most of his adult life. He's in foster care. He goes, lives with his half-sister, and then is involved for five, six years in, in a life of, of, of crime, petty crime, but still crime, um, and then joins the Nation of Islam. And what Malcolm's able to do with the Nation of Islam is really resuscitate large aspects of the Garvey movement for radical political self-determination. So Malcolm's leading a black power movement alongside of the civil rights movement, even before Stokely Carmichael calls for black power in 1966. So that's that's really, there always needed to be somebody who was saying what Malcolm was saying. So his, his emergence comes from that, trying to turn Negroes into black people and really people who have a love and admiration for Africa and their history. Um, Dr. King is really coming out of the black social gospel tradition. And there was always gonna be somebody coming out of that tradition. And when we think about the social gospel, this is an idea of looking at uh, the Bible, looking at the Old and New Testament, looking at the teachings of the Bible as something that needs to apply to the everyday reality of the world. So instead of waiting to go to heaven for paradise, the social gospel says, we need to end poverty now. We need to end racism now, the black social gospel. We need to end segregation now. And so King is coming out of that tradition, very, very well educated, um, has all these networks, Morehouse College, Prozier Theological, Boston University. And then really, you know, fate strikes King because the, the, the bus boycott is really organized by these veterans, these African-American veteran leaders. Rosa Parks is a civil rights activist, grassroots organizer. She's a, she's a woman who's fought against sexual assault of black women, the rape of black women by white men uh, in the 1940s and 50s. That's what Rosa Parks was doing. And so when we think about King, King becomes a spokesperson there and is really, King is never a day-to-day -day organizer. He's a political mobilizer at a very, very early age. And so King is giving you that black Christian social gospel tradition Malcolm is giving you that black nationalist Garveyite tradition. They both tap into those. And then as individuals, they're incredibly charismatic. They're incredibly uh, effective. I think they're both intellectuals um, and, and political leaders and social movement leaders. So I would say that all those things converge in making them um, these indispensable uh, political leaders. And they're also very, very curious. Both of them travel broadly. Both of them read widely. Um, they're attentive listeners. Uh, they change and evolve over time, so they don't stay stagnant. Um, and they're 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 very very brilliant um, um, political leaders who have their own flawed uh, personal lives, like everyone does. 
but really, really brilliant and attentive uh, to this idea of social justice and racial justice. But that could be said of the other five, like six, because, you know, in terms of, you know, capacity to view the world, analysis, organize, mobilize, in terms of ra radical criticism of either capitalism or, or just racism without going as far as putting into question capitalism, you know, were there specific events that kind of, you know, you know, kind of, you know, triggered this kind of a new dimension that, you know, Malcolm X, like, you know, becomes, okay, I know the answer because, <laughs> but I just want to have your answer because through the book, you know, we can speak of Malcolm X turning the Nation of Islam into a national movement, uh, Dr. King's analysis and sharp, you know, dis discourse and his capacity to kind of, you know, come down to the South and give his, or help uh, share his influence. Were there specific events that kind of, all right, this is now becoming, they are playing into a league of their own now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think one, the, the, when you think about the heroic period of the civil rights movement, there's gonna be domestic and global events. So the Brown Supreme Court decision and the Montgomery bus boycott is one of those. Emmett Till, the assassination of Emmett Till, who's a young black boy who's murdered in uh, Money, Mississippi, August 28, 1955, uh, provides a big context. For Malcolm X, the Bandone Conference uh, starts the non-alignment non movement uh, representatives of uh, 29 different nations, including African and Middle Eastern and third world nations, representing over a billion people, say they're not going to be part of the Soviet or U.S. capitalist um, um, sphere. Uh, so all those, there's definitely going to be these global events, Birmingham, um, the sit-ins, Cuban independence in 1959 and meeting up with Fidel Castro. So they are living in this world historic uh, time and they become part of transforming uh, the, the domestic and the international landscape. So one, one clear sign for King is going to be the March on Washington gaining access to the Kennedy administration. He's Time Magazine's Man of the Year and then winning the Nobel Prize, right? That's a clear sign for King. For Malcolm, it's going to be different. I mean, he builds up the Nation of Islam into such a big organization that by 1963, you know, he's national representative. He's on um, a, a public, he's on a, a big public uh, television program that's nationally televised where Dr. King is interviewed separately, but he's one of the leaders you have to interview too. James Baldwin is interviewed, Malcolm, Dr. King, by Kenneth Clark. And so, you know, Malcolm, what Malcolm keeps doing and the big signs of the impact he's having is how Dr. King is being forced to talk about Malcolm X, even when he doesn't speak his name, because this idea of self-defense, this idea of political self-determination. And so by 63, you can see that Malcolm has really injected himself into the movement and is really further radicalizing um, the movement. And certainly in 64, when he's away uh, for about 25 weeks and he does the Hajj to Mecca and where he is in Nigeria and Ghana and Tanzania and Cairo, meeting with big officials, I'd say the turning point for him is going to be the fact that not only can he go to Mecca and do the Hajj um, and become this orthodox, this global Muslim figure, but the fact that he can go to Cairo and be accepted at the Organization of African Unity when, you know, 
he, he says he's the representative of, of 22 million African-Americans, but he's this unelected official who the African and Middle Eastern leaders are saying, yes, you are their representative. And so that's like, wow. I mean, and again, I don't feel we're ever going to have that again. You, you can't just say, none of us can say who are in America that I'm Black America's prime minister. And people are going to say, okay, Dr. Joseph, you, and who, did, who, who, who elected you? And you say, no one elected me. I'm the prime minister. I'm the, and, you know, and, and if you talk to other Black people, they'd say, yes, Malcolm is our prime minister. He, he, he is our representative, right? And so you, both of them become these global statesmen in 1964 in ways that, again, it had never been duplicated since or before. And really, I would say as a historian, do I think that that'll ever happen again? I think it's very unlikely because we live in a time where people want people who are credentialed. You have to prove yourself, right? The reason why Barack Obama became such a global figure, one of the most important figures that history has ever produced is because he won the election. <laughs> Because, look, he, he went and he could meet with France's president. He can go to Algeria. He can go anywhere, right? But it's not like he just decided and he told us, hey, I'm Barack Obama and I'm representing... And that's exactly what, you know, and actually I think you, you nailed it, you know, that events built these characters yeah. that I think, humanly speaking, there were rivalries. I, I'd, I'd be ambitious on the wrong side of things and say that maybe some pettiness yeah. would be involved. But events at the end of the day made these two characters, you know, stand out. And as you say, will we ever see another Malcolm X or Dr. King? Let's let's hope we do. Yeah. We you know, let's hope we do. It would be a sign that you know, you know, anti-racists across the globe manage to kind of renew, yes. you know, through the generation, renew themselves. Now, March 26th. 1964, we are on the Senate floor. What's going on and what happens that day? Well, the Senate is filibustering the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And what's very interesting, this is the act, the legislation that's going to desegregate uh, public accommodations in the United States. Probably the biggest thing it does, um, truthfully, is it sets up Black people, or not just Black people, it sets up non-white people and women as a protected class uh, in the federal government. So when you think about years later, the reason why you have now US universities, all women's sports to go along with all men's sports is that uh, women sued uh, by, by not having any athletics. And they said, look, the 1964 Civil Rights Act says you can't discriminate on the basis of race or sex, you know? And so, that act is a huge act, um, and that's what was being debated in the Senate. What's interesting is Malcolm comes to support the passage of that act. So Dr. King comes there to support it too, but Malcolm does too. And I make, I make a point of saying that because that's when you see Malcolm is transitioning into not saying that he doesn't believe in self-defense or political self-determination. He always believes in that. So Malcolm never, ever turns away from that. But he's transitioning into seeing that in addition to radical black dignity, you do need citizenship. That's the whole thing. And see, the reason why Malcolm initially isn't interested in King's idea of citizenship, Malcolm feels that it's so bankrupt because why should we have citizenship on the terms of white supremacists? You see, that, that's why Malcolm's saying. Malcolm's saying, and he has a great uh, discussion with Kenneth Clark where he says, 
oh, oh, Kenneth Clark is asking him, you know, are you a racial, what does racial separatism mean? What does this mean? And Malcolm says that, look, if, if white folk were willing to integrate, he would be fine with integrating. But because he feels that black people are human beings, Malcolm says he doesn't want to march or protest to racially integrate. And Malcolm also reminds Dr. Clark that the 13th and 14th and 15th amendments should have solved everything because they provided voting rights, in this case, just for black men, provided birthright citizenship and the end of racial slavery. So Malcolm is saying, the reason why he's not interested initially in voting rights and legislation, he's saying the country is so racist, the fact that we have to argue for these things means that this entire project is bankrupt. And I understand that perspective. I, I have a different perspective, but I completely understand it. A lot of what people are fighting for, even now in terms of Black Lives Matter, you, you can just throw your hands up and say, uh, this is so ridiculous because anybody and any place that you have to fight to get this kind of recognition as a human being is someplace that's irredeemable, right? And so for years, Malcolm really is going that line. And then again, through meeting people, and I think he does want change, I actually think Malcolm would have felt more comfortable living outside of the United States, uh, living in the Middle East and living in Africa over time if he had been allowed to live. Um, because I think he was very, very tired of the struggles here. So that day though becomes very important because both of them are saying that if this legislation is not passed, there's gonna be racial violence. Both of them are meeting at crossroads. Malcolm on his way to being this global statesman from being Black America's prosecuting attorney. King, who had been Black America's chief defense attorney, he's on his way to his high point of acceptance in mainstream American society. By the end of the year, he wins the Nobel Prize, the youngest Nobel recipient in, in world history. And uh, by 1965, the Voting Rights Act is gonna be passed. But right around the time that Malcolm's assassinated and Watts Los Angeles explodes, King starts speaking like Malcolm as early as 65. He has the essay Beyond Los Angeles, and he says he's gonna use civil disobedience and nonviolence as a political sword, the same way that Malcolm had said they should have used it at the March on Washington. Malcolm calls the March on Washington a farce on Washington because he felt they should have paralyzed the entire city, but he tells reporters that he was moved by Dr. King's speech, which means he watched the speech. He also watches King in Harlem, sitting next to one of King's lieutenants, Andy Young, when King speaks in Harlem, December 17th, 1964, after winning the Nobel Peace Prize. And he speaks positively about that speech later. And then he tries to visit Dr. King uh, February 4th, February 5th in Selma, Alabama, when King is arrested for voting rights uh, activism. And he, he speaks with Coretta Scott King. He does a speech to civil rights activists. And he tells Coretta Scott King he admires her husband. He's just there to help and not to hurt. And he wants these white racists to know there's going to be an alternative if voting rights aren't given. So you can really see that trajectory. People, people are uninformed where they say Malcolm suddenly became soft or he changed his mind. It's not that. He, like he said, he broadened his scope. He never, ever gives up on political self-determination. And if there needs to be revolutionary violence, Malcolm said, so be it. And it was morally justified. Um, but... He, he expands the struggle for radical Black dignity to include radical Black citizenship in the service of human rights for all people.
So the bill is being passed and a famous picture is taken. King and at all, I think he looks skinnier than usual, Malcolm yes. X, shaking hands and smiling. And Malcolm X cracks a joke as usual. Now you are going to be investigated. As if Dr. King wasn't already. He didn't, they didn't realize. They thought, they thought that King was so mainstream, you know, and what King was talking about with nonviolence, they didn't understand um, the depths of corruption of the American nation state and that the, the, the FBI and different uh, law enforcement agencies had King under surveillance, uh, which again yeah. showed you just what a, a sick society uh, the United States was and, and still is. What is the impact of such a picture of them shaking hands, you know, and you know, exchanging, you know, pleasantries, in terms of how the movement went afterwards? You know, a year later, Malcolm is killed. Then three years later, is you know, Dr. King's turn, and then the crack, the uh, the backlash. Then we have the return of the cons cons conservative America strikes back. Uh, what is the, you know, because I, now I want to really, you know, ask this final question of the book because I want to take you to the ongoing protest. Mm -hmm. But what is the historic weight of such a picture, especially for those that you mentioned, trying to kind of either, you know, portray in, in very simplistic terms, you know, Malcolm X, you know, turning soft or Dr. King become radical, becoming radical, excuse me. So, you know, because that picture, we see it online and I'm actually addressing the audience that's constantly sharing these pictures, uh, too black, too strong. Yeah, fine. But the political meaning of these two giants meeting and what it means for the movement afterwards. Yeah, I think it's a great uh, picture, and I think it shows a couple of things. One, it shows you uh, the potential that they had to, to be political leaders together, you know, of, a, of this global, um, both Black liberation, but human rights struggle. So it shows you that potential. I think, too, it shows you that there was convergence. The very fact that they meet, the only time they meet uh, is at the U.S. Senate, where they're both being political lobbyists, and they're both trying to lobby for black citizenship and black dignity really shows you that they were not as far apart, as far afield um, as, as, as you might think. Uh, and then finally, I think the picture is also a great indicator of the, the youthful activism um, that changes the world because they're meeting, uh, Dr. King is uh, 35 when they meet, uh, Malcolm, um, is, is 38 and about to have his last birthday uh, on May 19th, which is gonna be 39. So can you imagine that a 38 and a 35 year old black activist uh, who are raised in Jim Crow segregated America um, have utterly changed the face of the world, right? So it's, just, it's definitely events um, and it's definitely uh, God, they were blessed uh, to have that power, but it's also them too, individually, that these are, uh, two activists who, uh, you know, I've said that the three things that they have in common with each other is uh, a personal sincerity, uh, political integrity, and an unapologetic love for Black people, and really all people who are underdogs all across the world. And so those are the three things that they have. And, and Malcolm famously quipped when they asked him uh, what was his uh, credentials to be doing all this stuff when he traveled overseas. He said he had no credentials, but he was sincere. That's what he said. He said he had no credentials and he's being too modest, of course, but I love that about Malcolm because Malcolm had a lot of humility. He said that he was sincere. So he realized he could be wrong, but he was sincere in believing that uh, black dignity 
And then eventually citizenship was what the world required uh, in the cause of human rights. Well, you know what? Uh, you just said something, and this this time is going to be a personal, you know, uh, you know, just you know, intervention on my behalf. Uh, that I am sincere. When I was eleven or twelve years old, and I read it, stuck with me forever. Yes, forever. It. I grew up with that, and even to this day, before doing something, I always ask myself, myself why are you doing it, and for whom? Yes. That's it, because, because, I mean, like, try to be like you're 11, 12 years old, Paris Beaulieu, you have French racism, you don't exist as a non-white minority, mm -hmm. and comes the, the, the Spike Lee movie, you take a slap, and then you're like, I'm gonna read the book, and you take 10 slaps. And, and it's, it's literally kind of, I really thank you for bringing this up, because this is what I send to the you know, younger audience, that sincerity was make, what makes actions last. Yes beyond you know the media hype beyond the buzz beyond all the visibility you get that's what's going to make you last and you know out you know outlast you know whoever is trying to you know to come across your path i have two questions from you this time they're coming from uh, st louis and from the ferguson area because i'm, I'm very close to uh, activists over there and uh, they had wind you were coming the first one was dr peniel where do you see the ongoing movement going or heading to, given the recent developments? Yeah, the Black Lives Matter, really 2.0 movements, these global uh, anti-racist movements. Uh, 4,700 protests in the United States um, starting May 26th, the day after George Floyd's public execution. I think that they're gonna continue. I don't know if we're gonna see them on this mass scale of mobilization. I think that this is an outgrowth of Black Lives Matter movements, but also Me Too, uh, women's marches, March for Our Lives, um, pro-Muslim marches for Muslim, our Muslim sisters and brothers, um, pro-immigrant marches, um, LGBTQ, just the whole family of humanity, this idea that we all deserve justice, you know, wh whoever we are, right? Um, I think that it's the policy arena. It's both, it's both more than just voting rights. It's, we have to end thousands of racist and anti-immigrant, anti-Black, anti-Muslim, anti-poor policies that are in the United States and globally. And we have to have the appearance of justice, what Dr. King called the appearance of justice. And what that means is we have to have a safety net for every single person who lives around the world. Um, and in but do you think, excuse me, to, to, I'm really sorry for being impolite, uh, but Given all that and the recent developments, dismantling of the Minneapolis police, um, LA, uh, I think, taking away $150 million from New their first budget. Billion, New York taking $1 billion away. Exactly, $1 billion in Europe, which is huge. Because some criticism is being made that the movement is, is, turning, is becoming used by liberals yeah. to kind of tone down the political demands. And as we said earlier, capitalize on it the same way they capitalized on Dr. King. How do you see things evolving, given that you are there and that your readings have been influential? And don't be modest about it. Well, here's, I want to read off um, 10, 10 things. Um, where I think the movement should, hand, should head, Black Lives Matter has demanded at least 10 things the, the black, in a policy way. One, reparations. Uh, two, no bail. Uh, three, release all prostitutes and sex workers from jail. Four, no death penalty. 
five free education for all Americans. And I think all this can be um, expanded to the globe. Uh, six, free healthcare. Seven, defund the police. Eight, cut the military budget. Nine, redistribute the wealth, which means redistributing power and justice. 10, publicly financed campaigns. So when we think about policy-wise, I think we should be pushing for all of that at the local, at the state, at the federal uh, level. And I think we've already seen, like we've discussed, the billion dollars uh, redistributed in New York that's going to be 150 million in Los Angeles. Minneapolis says they're gonna rethink public safety and they have their votes to defund the police and we'll see what goes on there. But in Austin, where I live, people are having not just these conversations, but these movements. So our dreams should be, like Robin Kelly has talked about, audacious freedom dreams. They should be audacious. And liberals, of course, are going to try to utilize the Black Lives Matter movement. Corporations are going to try to do that, too. That happened during the civil rights movement as well. But if you say that these are your policy goals, um, then you're going to be fine. You know, if you say those are your policy goals, and, and the final thing I'll say, because I have to, I have to, I have to go, um, defund the police and the, the abolition of prison should be our, our foremost goals. And when people say and, and, and reject this idea of defunding the police, it's something that Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. would have absolutely supported because what it means is just like the abolition of slavery, it means uh, voting rights, civil rights, human rights, it means that you're going to invest and fully fund um, um, education and jobs and a basic income and housing for everyone. And you're going to rethink public safety. And you're going to have people who help people who are in mental distress, help people who have drug addiction, any kind of emotional uh, problem, instead of overfunding um, police who criminalize and incarcerate and murder uh, Black and brown people. Um, at extraordinary rates. So we have got to stick to our um, principles about defund the police and also ab abolish prison. Anybody who's seen Ava DuVernay's Brilliant the 13th, prisons do not oh, yeah. work. Oh, yeah. Prisons do not work. And the reason why the 13th Amendment says, except in the case of incarceration, is because they it's the evolution of racial slavery and racial caste, the entire prison system, and the supply chain of misery and grief that that system sets up and the supply chains of power and privilege, which it amplifies for white supremacist and racial capitalists. So those are the things we have to keep in mind. And yes, Malcolm and Martin would have absolutely been on the side of the Black Lives Matter movement. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Joseph, you know, time flies and I'm really, you know, saddened to shorten the, uh, the interview because you have to go. So Dr. Peniel Joseph, thank you again for this book. I'm almost finished reading it. And so I highly recommend it. It's called The Sword and the Shield, published in 2020. And of course, you know, your publications out, out there. Any person who wants to look after your work, just you know, type in Peniel Joseph. Uh, thank you from you know, Paris. You stay safe and please publish that book that you were speaking of and make that tour that Malcolm X did so you can you know, give us some work on what Malcolm X accomplished across you know, the Atlantic. Absolutely, thank you so much. Thank you, it's my pleasure. See you soon, thank you.